Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we try to rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. How was your weekend, Ben? My weekend has been pretty okay, but it's really great now that I'm doing the show with you. Aw, thank you. It's a very special episode. Is it? Well, I mean... Yes, in the sense of the celebration of big round numbers. What round number is that? Well, this is episode 150, Sarah. That's really cool. Yeah, it means that we've been doing this show for basically three years. Yes, that is how math works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like, how is he getting to three years? And then I did the... Yeah. Weeks, 52 weeks. Yeah, and, carried the yeah, two. Carried, yeah. yeah. Well, high five. Hi! You are truly right. This is a very special episode. What remarkable, amazing, noteworthy film are we watching to celebrate this momentous occasion? Right. So this is why I said it was a special episode for the purpose of celebrating large numbers. Uh, it's not necessarily a special episode in terms of content. Uh, this week's episode, which I still hope you enjoy, is going to be on The Creeper from 1948. No relation to the Rondo Hatton character who appeared in three films. This is a movie instead that has a two-sentence Wikipedia entry. (laughs) One sentence in the introduction and one sentence in the plot summary. And that's it. Okay, Uh, so tell us more than those two sentences then. I shall strive to. So... As I said, this is nothing to do with the Rondo Hatton Creeper character, but it is directed by the guy who directed those movies, uh, Gene Yarbrough. And despite the title, and also despite coming out at a very late point in the decade for horror, what this really is, is a cat people (laughs) ripoff. Okay, yeah, cat creeps. Okay. Yeah. Um, In fact, early drafts of this movie were called The Cat Man, And I'm not really sure why they changed it to the Creeper, because in addition to being confusing with the Rondo Hatton character, uh, it even got them in trouble when radio producer Joseph Ruskell sued them for the use of the title of one of his radio shows. The suit was settled out of court, but I guess now we know why Universal never called any of the Rondo Hatton movies the Creeper. Yeah. They knew better. (laughs) So the movie was produced by an independent production company called Reliance Pictures and distributed by 20th Century Fox. Now, that a major studio like 20th Century Fox is buying B-movies off of, like, independent production companies um, kind of reflects the changing times in Hollywood at this point. You know, that the big studios aren't making their own B-movies, that Mm -hmm. they're sort of buying them off the streets. And this all has to do with the fact that, as we've mentioned before, audience attendance was dropping in the late 40s, as well as the U.S. government was going after sort of traditional pillars of the film industry business model, like block booking and vertical integration. I almost feel like the government going after vertical integration is a more 
understandable reason than lower attendance. Mm. Because for studios across the board, it's not just one, it's mm-hmm. across the board, these studios closing their B-movie mm-hmm. units, it clearly has to do more with them looking down the line and going, this isn't worth it if the government's going to be closing off these avenues rather than people just not going. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, television has come in, but I can't imagine it being that drastic. Yeah. And that quick to create these waves. Oh, yeah. In the late 40s, like, not a lot of people have a television, and there's not a lot on for the people who do. Yeah. But it's still, I mean, going to take a slice out of the business. Absolutely. Um, particularly, it's where a lot of things like B-movies or especially serials, you know, end up going instead of being in theaters. So Reliance Pictures had been founded by producer Edward Small in 1932. How tall was he? Uh, he was born Edward Schmalheiser okay. in 1891 in Brooklyn. And he began his career in the 1910s as a New York talent agent where he had clients like then-actress Hedda Hopper. In the 1920s, he began producing uh, his own movies, particularly comedies to start out with. He founded Reliance with his business partner, Harry Goitz, and they did that with funding from United Artists. So a lot of their early movies that they produced were released by United Artists. Films like I Cover the Waterfront, The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, The Last of the Mohicans. They also produced uh, two sequels, the Son of Monte Cristo and The Return of Monte Cristo, uh, as well as a film version of The Man in the Iron Mask, a movie version of Brewster's Millions, um, as well as like just a lot of other stuff. I mean, this was a pump-out-the-product kind of company. Yeah. In the late 1940s, Reliance was releasing films through United Artists, through Universal International, and a lot of them were being released through Columbia. Small, at this point, was pessimistic about the future of the film industry, and he predicted that the industry's survival would depend on tapping into international markets. Yeah, true. Mm -hmm. In 1947, Reliance signed a deal with 20th Century Fox for six pictures to be produced by Small's son, Bernard, and The Creeper was one of these movies. The script was written by Maurice Tombragel, and Don Martin, uh, writers who had done a lot of westerns before this, and would do a lot of westerns after this in film and TV. Do you think Don Martin sung a lot of Dean Martin songs at karaoke? I don't think they had karaoke in the 40s and 50s, Sarah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Huh. Now we've seen one previous film written by Maurice Tom Bragel, and that was Horror Island. Oh, no. That's on the miscellaneous list. As I mentioned before, our old friend Gene Yarbrough is directing. Uh, now, since The Brute Man, he's directed Shed No Tears, a film noir for Eagle Lion, and then this. His film career would continue into the early 50s when he made a smooth and successful transition to television, working until 1971 and passing away in 1975 at age 73. Our top-billed actor is Eduardo Cianelli, who was born in 1888 in Italy and who started his career in opera as a baritone. Oh, nice. He came to New York in 1914 
and began appearing on Broadway in 1920. His film appearances began in 1931, and he had 153 acting credits before his final film appearance in 1970, having passed away in 1969. I feel like we would have seen a lot of him if we were doing a show like this, but for musicals. Because mm. if he's an opera singer, especially baritone, like we saw in one of the Phantom of the Opera Yeah, the movies. 1943 Phantom of the Opera. But there was also... Um, the Climax. The Climax. Yeah, they like to have like baritone singers. He, We have actually seen him before. Oh. Uh, he was the original high priest of Karnak in 1940's The Mummy's Hand, who sends George Zuko to America. So very, very brief. Almost a cameo. Mm. He also played Dr. Satan in the serial The Mysterious Dr. Satan that same year. <laughs> okay. One of the other actors in this film is 46-year-old Onslow Stevens, uh, who makes an appearance here. We last saw him in 1945's House of Dracula as Dr. Franz Edelman. Also featured in the film is 28-year-old actress June Vincent, who we saw before in a very small role in the climax, and who would go on to a long career playing bit parts on television. One of the most recognizable faces to us in this movie will be 65-year-old actor Ralph Morgan, actor and co-founder of the Screen Actors Guild, who we've seen before in 1935's Condemned to Live, 1942's Night Monster, and 1944's The Monster Maker. This is the last time we will see Ralph Morgan before his death in 1956 at age 72. The Creeper was released on September 1st, 1948 to little fanfare. It lapsed into the public domain when Reliance Pictures ceased to be a going concern. The only home video release I am aware of is a poor VHS release in the 1980s from a cheap bargain bin VHS company from which all of the online and cheap rip-off DVD releases seem to be derived. Well, that's a lot more than two sentences. Good job, Ben. <laughs> we are now more informative than Wikipedia. We should, we should have that as a, uh, a motto now under the show's title. Scream scene. More informative than Wikipedia. Exactly. Love it. So how are we watching this? You can find this movie on our YouTube playlist. Great. Listeners, you can find that YouTube playlist at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Creeper and whether it's our jellical choice. <laughs> See you on the other side, everybody. <laughs> everybody to scream scene <laughs> we just finished watching the creeper from 1948 uh directed by gene yarbrough so sarah yeah what did you think uh it is very funny to me that these guys got into some legal trouble with the name of this movie mm-hmm. as you detailed in the context setting because there's no reason it needs to be called the creeper but there is a reason that it can't be called the cat man which was the original title. Yes, because he's not all cat. 
Oh, I was going to say because the movie's so obsessed with making sure you can't guess who the person is until the end of the movie, Catman would kind of give it away, or at least 50% of it away. <laughs> there is a cat named Creeper in the movie, but he he's just hanging around. Yeah, he's just in the movie. Yeah. He is one of our suspects, though, actually. <laughs> Because everybody in this movie is one of our suspects. Why don't we just talk about the story of this movie? Cool. This movie wants to keep you in the dark for so long to do a a twist or to try to do suspense or something Mm -hmm. for so long that you don't even know what is really going on and not in a way where it's like, looking back, you're like, oh, that was really clever. In a way that's like... If you had actually told me earlier, maybe this scene would have actually been suspenseful and tense. Or interesting, right? Or it's, interesting. It's, it's hard to get invested in scenes where characters just say vague sentences to each other that you don't understand the context of. Yeah. But I've done what I can to kind of parse it out. Mm-hmm. Dr. Cavani, his daughter Nora, and his research partners Dr. Borden and Gwen Brunstrom have just returned from a four-month-long research expedition in the West Indies. Their research is on making some kind of phosphorescent liquid or something like that to use in surgeries so that, you know, a surgeon would be able to use it and be like, oh, that's where the heart is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And to develop the serum that would do this, they experiment on cats. Not, like, they don't say why specifically on cats, It's because the movie has a cat theme. Yes, that's true. Yeah. But scientifically. Yeah, I I have some comments. Yeah. For the expedition, they camped out where the locals happened to believe that if they died, they would turn into cats after death. Over the four months, Nora got a fever, and this amplified her already existing fear of cats into a complete phobia. We learn later in the movie also that... Uh, During the expedition, she suspected her father and the other research people of using people for experiments, Mm -hmm. um, and that the guide's wife died as a result. Um, But this is neither confirmed nor denied. Right. It's neither here nor there, even. Yeah, like, she might have just, the wife, that is, might have just died For other reasons, because she dies during Nora's fever, so everything is very confusing. Mm -hmm. Now that they are back home, Nora continues to have nightmares about cats stalking her. A friend and also scientist in the same building, Dr. John Reed, who also happens to be Gwen's fiancé, tries to help Nora out because they're friends, and Gwen gets jealous. Yeah, unreasonably jealous. Meanwhile... Dr. Cavani is satisfied with the research enough to just publish the findings, while Dr. Borden wants to continue the experiments. He orders some cats to be shipped from the West Indies so he can continue these experiments. Cavani doesn't want to continue, so he doesn't share his research notes, so Borden can't actually continue. And, surprise, Cavani ends up dead. (laughs) He's found with, like, claw marks around his neck. As if he was attacked by a giant cat. Mm -hmm. Nora is suspected of the murder because of her now-developed psychosis around cats. Uh, She's also found with blood on her hands and under her fingernails. 
Um, but there is not enough evidence. Yeah. She does live with her dad and was, like, the first person to find the body. So there's, like, reasonable reasons for her hands to be covered in blood. As Nora gets even worse, the guide from the West Indies, whose wife had died, um, has come back to the U.S. with the new shipment of cats to kind of be their cat handler. Um, and he ends up murdered with claws around his throat. Right now, maybe I should just specify, these are like... House cats. House cats. These aren't jungle cats. Right. Uh, maybe that's just good to it's, clarify. No, it, it's good to clarify, absolutely. These cats fit in small boxes. Yes. Gwen has drastic mood swings, while Borden seems to be acting sneaky. As if, like, the writer wants these two to be sneaky and suspicious... And for men, that means being sneaky and suspicious. And for women, that must just mean that bitches be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. All the women in this movie have, like, really give off strong impressions that they have mental problems. Whereas all the men in this movie give off very strong impressions that, like, wait, why are you in this room and looking in that direction with that look on your face? <laughs> Gwen and John end up calling off their engagement because of her jealousy. But that night, John finds Gwen dead in the research lab after she was burning notes. And again, she was killed in the same way with claws around the neck. Nora, back at her own house, goes searching and finds her dad's research notes. And she promptly burns them. Then she starts to hear cat cries and strange meows. So she grabs... Her gun. Her daddy's gun. At the same time, we see a cloaked figure kind of snooping around the house and getting inside, and John is following him. But John spooks Nora, and she shoots him. Mm -hmm. Then the real villain, Dr. Borden, comes out, and he uses the last of the serum he has to turn his hand into a cat claw to kill Nora. But... He gets shot by John! Who wasn't quite dead yet. And as they wait for the police and an ambulance to arrive, she's trying to explain to John that, no, really, his hand was a cat claw. I'm not crazy. And he's like, mm, maybe we'll leave that part out to the police and we'll just hand this open and shut case to them. Mm -hmm. Except what he doesn't realize is that the cat claw is what would tie... Borden to the previous murders. Sure. In any case, that's the end. I will note, there's another character who I have not even mentioned. Right. Because he's just a red herring. He is Dr. Van Glock, who is John's research partner. Um, they would do work on, like, allergies and stuff, and he's literally just a red herring, he's as a possible suspect. Yeah, he's suspicious because he, like is constantly looking in the other lab where the phosphorescent research is happening, basically because John and Van Glock have a pet cat named Creeper, who they keep around their lab, who's a black cat with, like, one white paw, uh, and he keeps, like, getting out of the lab. So Dr. Van Glock is always looking around the building to find the cat. And because he's old and shifty and foreign, he's a suspect. Yeah. This is the character played by Eduardo Cianelli, who has top billing in this movie. Oh, really? He's barely in it. Yep. Good paycheck for him, then. Yeah, so that's the movie. Ben, is there anything you want to 
add? Because the movie is a little incomprehensible, but I might have skipped over something that you might want you to talk did about. A, you did a much better job of telling the story of this movie than the movie did. I think you hit everything <laughs> that was important. Anything else will maybe come up in our discussion. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that's important for listeners to understand is, like, Sarah just told the movie in a way that makes sense. The movie itself, the background about the West Indies and what exactly the experiments are and what they're exactly doing and what the backstory is, that doesn't really get explained until, I want to say, at the earliest a quarter of the way into the movie. The first murder of Dr. Cavani, which sets off the whole plot, doesn't happen until like halfway through the movie. Everything leading up to that is just us getting introduced to all these characters saying vague, slightly suspicious, weird things to one another, um, to the point where you just aren't sure what the hell's going on or why you should care. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Sarah, you briefly touched on this, but the movie's, like, primary M.O. until the very end is to make it so that you think anyone in this movie could possibly be the murderer, the, the cat killer. And the the killer cat. The killer cat, thank you. <laughs> and the only person who isn't really a suspect is Dr. Reed, because he's kind of more or less the protagonist. Nora is also kind of the protagonist, but she's definitely also a suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, they are the main characters of this movie. Uh, Nora is played by Janice Wilson, who appeared in seven movies, of which this was the last. And... John Reed is played by John Barragray, uh, and this was his second feature film. Uh, whereas, yeah, top build Eduardo Cianelli is basically not in this movie, other than as a red herring. It's basically the kind of role that, like, Lugosi plays in movies, you know, in this period, where yeah. he's just there to be suspicious. Um, and then Onslow Stevens, who's second build, he is playing the real villain, Dr. Borden, but Borden is also barely in this movie. Yeah. Honestly, if you were to try to guess the plot of this movie or like what the movie's focus is on based on who has the most screen time, you would guess that the movie is about the love triangle mm-hmm. between Gwen, Nora, and John. Yeah. But that's... Not what it's about. It's barely a plot point. Well, so the thing is, like, I think what might be useful to do is kind of quickly go down how the movie tries to make everybody a suspect. Because I think it's something that'll help us when we talk about kind of how bad this movie is on a script level. Sure. So Nora is a suspect because she has the psychosis about the cats. Um, She seems to be hallucinating as if she sees a giant white claw, which is like the stupidest looking thing. I'll put a pin in this and come back to this later. But the... The claw is bad. The claw is comically bad. In any case, she she sees that. She hears cat cries. She freaks out any time she sees a cat. Um, So it's it's clear that she's not in her right mind. And she, once her dad dies, seems to get even worse. I mean, her dad has died. That makes sense why she would get worse. But um, her psychosis gets, like, amplified. We learn later that it's because Dr. Borden has been getting Creeper, the cat, who has the one white paw. He's been the one taking the cat and, like, putting it in the house or whatever to to spook her. And presumably injecting himself with the serum to have, like, that weird white claw show up Mm -hmm. to kind of freak her out. Um, 
with the idea of, like, driving her insane so she'll go into an asylum and stop being in the way. Because it was her it's, existence that made we'll get her... There. We'll yeah, get there. Sorry. We're getting off track. <laughs> okay, We're getting okay, off track. Okay. We just uh, want to talk about, like, why people are a suspect. Okay, and I think, so that's that. Right. I think the reason why the movie expects you to suspect her is because there's this implication that when she like sleeps and has these weird hallucinatory dreams that she's turning into a cat person and going and doing these murders when she's not aware of it because the very first thing we learn about Nora in the movie is that she sleepwalks and does weird bizarre things in her sleep and therefore can't like be trusted and this is the part of the movie that rips off cat people right it's about this woman with psychological problems who thinks she might be a murderous cat person that's kind of the tie-in there as we've already mentioned, Dr. Van Glock is suspicious just because he's foreign and he's in places where he's not supposed to be, and he's always kind of like wandering around the periphery of scenes for no reason. Uh, Dr. Borden, who turns out to be the bad guy, is suspicious because A, he has, he has evil a evil Spock mustache beard. Yeah, he has a Satan goatee. And B, he's obviously the bad guy because he's the only person with a motive. Yeah. Like, the movie establishes immediately that, like, the central conflict is between Dr. Cavani and Dr. Borden over whether to go forward with the research or not. And then all of the murders are, like, tied in with that research project. Now, Gwen, I think, is also considered a suspect because she is working closely with Borden. Mm-hmm. Um, the minute that she gets back from the expedition... She, it seems to be very distant with her fiancé, so it's as if they were trying to imply that there was something between Gwen and Borden. Yeah, yeah, and that, like, she's now his accomplice or whatever. Yeah. And I think they try to back up this by having her act really aggressively in other scenes to, like, make it be like, oh, she's the kind of person who has the temperament for this or something like that. Like, that's how they amp up the jealousy thing with the love triangle. It's kind of why the love triangle's there. But the love triangle is, like, inexplicable almost because it's clearly just, like, John knew both Nora and Gwen from before the expedition. He's concerned about Nora because she's clearly not well. Like, Borden's gaslighting aside, Nora is still clearly in need of treatment for PTSD. Yeah. Um, So he's concerned. Gwen takes his concern as, oh, he doesn't love me anymore, he loves Nora, and they have alarmingly nonsensical conversations such as, hey, what are you doing tonight? Oh, nothing. Maybe you could take me out for a movie. Sure thing. You're lying to me. You don't want to take me out at all. You don't sound very enthusiastic. You're in love with her, aren't you? Oh, I'm so sorry. It's just the strain that's getting to me. And you're sitting there as an audience member like, what is going on? Yeah. But I think that making Gwen basically like a psycho bitch, for lack of a better term, is like how they're trying to justify her as a suspect. And then... That's kind of it. Well, Andre is a possible suspect before he gets murdered because of stuff we don't learn about him until after he gets murdered. Yeah, so that's kind of where I was getting off track before. So it was his wife that died. Nora was worried that Andre came to the States to murder her father and her because she thought her dad was responsible for the death of his wife. Yeah, because she thought maybe they were doing people experiments, which, again, is never confirmed or denied. Yeah. And also, we only learn this after Andre's already dead. So he is a suspect... But the movie 
has already eliminated him. Right. It, it fucks up its own, like, thing there. And then the final suspect is Creeper, the house cat. Yeah, because what if he... Is somehow, like, a magic monster cat thing. Yeah. Like, it's just because, like, the movie's called the Creeper, he's a black cat... And With he's got one the white one white paw, paw. Yeah. yeah, which matches the the big monster cat. Which so, I think, like, I think they they went out to get the prop for this hand, <laughs> and they could only find a white hand. Right. And they're like, "Fuck! What are we supposed to do? We've already cast this black cat as well." Creeper. Yeah, and black cats are scary. Yeah, so they put it looks like a little mini fake mm-hmm. prop, like because it doesn't match the size. Um, on this poor cat. He's got a little white cat booty on his cat foot. Yeah, little cat booty. (laughs) So in addition to being primarily bad on a script level for reasons that we've already begun alluding to, this is also secondarily bad on an acting level. Absolutely. Nora, her actor Janice Wilson, she has to portray this woman who's like slowly going through a mental collapse. And her primary way of doing that is to have her eyes just be bugged out and intensely staring at people without blinking while sort of talking like this. You're lying to me, aren't you? Like, yeah. it's very one note. And there's no development yeah. of it. It's just uh, a switch. Yeah. Similarly, as we've already mentioned, uh, June Vincent, who plays Gwen, basically alternates from, oh... I'm the heroine in this movie, maybe, kind of voice, to actually, I'm the bitchy other woman in this movie, kind of, maybe. Like, those are her two modes. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like we should just give a little bit of some leeway for the actress, because it's not like she had much to work with in terms of the script. Oh, the script is bad. The director isn't doing a good job of helping his actors through a bad script. Correct. The male actors are all just kind of here. Yeah, like, I didn't even think... Like, I, I was, I was like, okay, Borden's a suspect because of his facial hair, mm-hmm. but otherwise there was nothing that he was doing that was menacing. No, in fact, Borden seems totally reasonable through the majority of the movie, even though he's obviously, like, you know he's going to turn out to be the bad guy because he's the only one who logically makes sense. And maybe that's the best point for me to dovetail into my scientific concerns with this movie. Really, you you want to dive into the scientific validity of doing research and experiments on cats to develop a phosphorescent serum? Yes, okay. I do. Awesome. So, this movie has the very, like, typical mad science movie structure of, like, the science is bad because there's just some things that man is not meant to know and we've gone too far. And, like, you know, it creates, like, this monster and leads to murders. Yeah, they do, like, mention, like, you know, the good use of the serum is illuminate the organs to make it easier for surgeons. And the bad use could be terrible. Well, they say mutations. (laughs) Okay. But that's all they say. The thing that's wild to me is that the specific scientific discovery that they're putting at the heart of this, like, ethical debate is, yeah, is making organs glow so that surgeons can find them easier. Which is not, like, on the same level as bringing corpses back from the dead, you know, or achieving immortality, or one of the other things that mad scientists (laughs) usually are doing in these movies. werewolf army. Right. (laughs) Okay, so the thing that bothers me about that is it means that the movie has, like, 
the movie only thinks, therefore, that, like, treating this science as potentially evil is a reasonable thing to do because it's the thing that all mad scientist movies do with science. So it's just, like, reinforcing this very, like, anti-science message Mm -hmm. that you get from these movies. And it's, like, even for science, that's, like, a reasonable thing. It's like, no, we... What happened to the days of philosophers who just sat around and thunk about stuff but never had answers because fuck knowing anything. What's better is just sitting around idly thinking about things. This is an actual conversation that was had. Yes. So the thing is, is like Dr. Borden not only seems reasonable because he's like, has a very like nice guy kind of performance. Like he's being performed as if he's just like a nice friendly dude. Yeah. Um... Which is supposed to be so that it's a greater twist, right? Yeah. But also, his point of view in this debate is also the correct one. Like, yes, we should have this science. It would be a good thing. The movie kind of ends up uh, confusing the issue a little bit because it refers to what they're trying to do as both phosphorescence and luminescence, Mm -hmm. and I get that, like, to the person writing the script or to a layman, like, those both mean the same thing. The thing glows, but who is right in the debate, Borden or Kaveny, literally depends on whether it's phosphorescence or luminescence, because if you inject someone with phosphorescence, that person, it'll be successful. You are guaranteed success in getting that thing to glow. That patient will die. Yeah. Guaranteed. Getting something to be luminescent is way more difficult, but, like, won't kill the person if you succeed. The work to discover the process of doing that won a Nobel Prize in 2008, and it's used for cancer surgery so that you can inject the tumorous tissue, the cancer cells, with luminescence so you know exactly where they are so that you can remove the tumors without accidentally removing surrounding healthy tissue. Uh, Breast cancer patients started being treated with this procedure in 2014. So this is, like, over 50 years after this movie, even. Yes. That's kind of neat. That's, yeah. like, real science. Right. It's except, not just, like, fake science. Except in this movie, it's evil. Yes. And and furthermore, and I know, I know that this is only this way because it's a movie about, like, cat stuff, because cat people was successful six years ago. But... There is such a thing as, like, suspension of disbelief and doing things that break suspension of disbelief. And what you're asking me to believe as, like, the core thing that the whole plot of this movie revolves around is that they went to the Caribbean, step one, to find house cats in the jungle, step two, so that they could remove something from the house cats, step three, to cause a serum, step four, that they could inject into humans, step five, that would make the humans glow. Yeah. What is in cats that will make a person glow? One, that's my first question. Two, why did you have to go to the West Indies to find the cats? Yeah, because like I said, they are just house cats. And it's clear that it's not just like, oh, well, the cats are the experimental subjects for the serum. The serum is coming from somewhere else. Because the thing that's giving Borden his cat hand is injecting himself with the serum. So they're clearly removing something from the cats to make the serum, and the implication is that's why he's getting a big furry claw hand out of it. 
like it's it's so <laughs> it's so clearly oh we started with it's a mad scientist movie with a cat monster and needed to work backwards but like the work to get backwards is bizarre to say the least yes also and i mean maybe this is nitpicking at this point but cats make terrible research animals. They're too small to really be useful as a serum source. They're too large to be easily handled. And they're too temperamental to be useful in an experiment. Cats, like, there's a reason why herding cats is an expression for something that's really hard to do. Yeah, what, what, what is interesting to me is Borden's lab yeah. is next door to Reed's. Yes. And Borden uses cats. Reed uses rats. Yes. But the reason they have the creeper cat is in case a rat gets loose. Yes. Um, but it's like, so they know that rats get used. At one point <laughs> in the dialogue, they refer to the experimental cats that they're experimenting on as their guinea pig cats, which immediately raises the question... Why aren't you using guinea pigs, the yeah. animal that is synonymous with animal testing, <laughs> unless you are talking about, yeah, like rats, which is what the other guys are using. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of calling them guinea pig cats is, is humorous. Because <laughs> it's like, the, do you call them rats? Guinea pig rats? Well, like... and also it's just don't, <laughs> when there are things in your story that don't make sense, you know... Sometimes that's inevitable when you're making a horror movie or a fantasy movie or a sci-fi movie. But don't put in dialogue that draws attention to the fact that it doesn't make sense. I think you bring up a great point about the science. Mm -hmm. Because it's clear that they are fumbling with concepts they don't understand. Yes. As if they themselves were the mad scientists. <laughs> um so, uh, like you just laid out in terms of the science, them fumbling with it, um, them fumbling with the idea of what gaslighting looks like, right. or psychological themes a la Luton. Yes. And even just with the basic storytelling structure in how you create tension and have narrative twists. Yeah. Like, like at one point, during one of her, like, psychosis hallucinations, Nora thinks she sees Andre coming towards her as if to choke her out. Right. That happens early enough that you you don't know who this guy is. Right. You don't know, like, why it would be him instead of a cat. This is before her dad dies, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and she freaks out, and you're like, okay. And then there's no explanation. And then, like, half an hour later... We get told, I thought he had come back to kill my father and I because I thought my dad killed his wife. We should have gotten that. First. First. The, the sequence... So we understand, like, why are we terrified of this guy? The sequence of events is like, this guy is a scary, like, red herring. Then we learn who he is. Like, this is Andre the cat herder. And then he dies. And then we learn why he was a suspect. We never learn why he died, though. Right. Well, okay, okay. This gets me to a bigger thing sure. that we need to talk about. Absolutely. Which is that none of the murders make any sense other than killing Cavani. And even killing Cavani doesn't really make any sense. So Borden, like, obviously has this conflict with Cavani over do we keep going with the experiments or not. 
the way that Kaveny is trying to screw Borden out of just continuing without him is by withholding his research notes. So killing Kaveny gets you nowhere. It gets, like, the police on your tail. It gets an investigation going. It doesn't get you the notes. Yeah, at no point is it shown that someone was looking for the notes. It's not like things are strewn about or anything. No. Um, Now, I will take issue with something you just said. You said that Kaveny's murder is the only one that kind of makes sense. Um, Gwen's murder makes sense. Not necessarily how we get to the point where she is about to, like burn the notes, and turn Mm. on Borden. But when we see her dead body, the notes are aflame and everything. So I can understand why she was killed. Her her death makes sense once it's explained, yes. Yes. Because it was that she was going to turn against Borden. She also had come to the point of believing these experiments were wrong, that kind of thing. But, like, why was Andre killed, and why was he ever trying to gaslight Nora or make her into a suspect, or anything. The The justification the movie gives is not great. It's, yeah, it's, it's um, Kaveny's love for his daughter gave him a moral backbone, and uh, Borden believes that that's why he wouldn't go further with the experiments. So let's gaslight Nora to get her into an asylum so she's out of the picture, and then Kaveny will finally do the experiments. Except you've killed him. Right. So you don't need to worry about Nora. Right. And also, like, for one thing, that chain of thought is nonsense, right? Like, oh, you have a daughter, so therefore you're a good person, so therefore you don't want to do these experiments. And it's like, okay, then here's what Borden should have done. He should have said, all right, Kaveny. I'm going to continue on without you, and I'm going to sue you for the research notes. Here's the thing, though. Kaveny was like, let's not continue with the experiments, but let's publish what we have. Yeah. So Borden should have just waited right. for the... Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's just publish <laughs> what we have. We publish in a journal. That puts all of Kaveny's notes out in the open, and then Borden can just keep going by himself doing experiments. Like... Problem solved. Yes, and also I will just say, now I do come from social sciences, but researchers are consistently publishing and doing experiments simultaneously. It's not an either or situation. This is a thing that comes up in a lot of mad scientist movies where it's like, the, the mad scientist in question has been, like, working on his one thing for, like, 50 years. And whenever anyone's like, so what are you working on? He's like, nothing. It's a secret. I can't tell you until it's finished. As if, like, they're a sculptor working on, like, something that, like, you know, they'll pull off a big cloth off of at the end. Yeah. And that's nonsense for a couple reasons. One, because of what you just said, that that's not how science works. But also... Science isn't like screenplays where you're like afraid someone's going to steal your idea. If you publish things along the way, other scientists will be able to like verify your experiments and the direction that you're going and maybe help you improve what you're doing as you go because it's like, oh, we now understand that that thing doesn't work at all, but this thing does. I can use that in the next experiment or whatever. Yeah. Like, the reason why scientists share information is because on the whole it makes science better. And, you know... That's that's not to say that stealing within science does not happen, but typically it is higher up stealing their assistance research. Like with... 
the DNA people. Yeah, like, like what happens usually is, you know, if everything in this movie had gone forward without murders, right? What would have happened is Kavni and Borden would have published a paper that in no way credited Gwen or Nora. Absolutely. And then Borden and Gwen would go on with the work without the Kavanys because they have a moral center or whatever. And then Borden would have published a second paper that would have just credited him and not Gwen. Yeah. That's what would have happened. <laughs> like, it's not so much that your ideas get stolen in science, it's that your work goes unrecognized. Those are related things, but they are two different things. And yeah, there's no reason why he needed to kill Andre. That's just silly. Yeah. Um, the, the thing about it is that this need for everyone to be a potential suspect creates this situation where a lot of the characters' actions don't make sense either when they're happening, but then still don't make sense in retrospect either. Yeah, it's like when you try to like write a pitch of your creative idea, and you're like, oh, I won't tell them the twist at the end, so it'll be a surprise to them. And that's not how you're supposed to write pitches. You're supposed to say, like, A... B, C, D. Yeah. Not, like, leaving C out, because then they won't accept your thing. The people who funded Psycho, like, absolutely knew that, like, Norman Bates's mother was dead. Yeah. And with this movie, the problem becomes, like, you have so many scenes of characters going, like, well, I have something I need to do now that I can't tell you about yet, and you can't come with me. Goodbye. Those scenes are meant to, like, make you suspect these people. But once you realize those people aren't the killers, and none of their dialogue in those scenes becomes explained either, it tells you that a lot of the scenes in this movie are actually just empty air, where people are saying words that don't mean or refer to anything. Yes. And you recognize slowly that, like many Poverty Row B movies, this is about a half hour worth of story in, like, a feature-length package. Yeah. Um, also, I don't think people involved in this film even bought their own concept. No. Because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> but they're just making this week's Reliance picture. Then they'll pack it in and I'll see you next week, Bob. Yeah. The thing is, is that what made cat people work, I mean, a lot of stuff made cat people work, but the main thing that made cat people work that means this doesn't work is that Val Luton was actually afraid of cats. He was? Yeah, Val Luton had a major cat phobia. That's oh. why cat people, uh, you know, works the way it does. And the leopard man. Because he knew, here's what you need to do to make cats scary, basically. Because if there's something this movie really fails at, it's it has a hell of a time making cats scary. Yeah, they're just on screen. It's Being not like cats. like, shot in a particular way. Um, they try with, like sounds but you don't even see the cats making the sound it's just you hear the yeah, cat and, meowing and, off screen and they aren't like scary cat sounds like the sound that a cat makes that you could make an argument for is kind of scary is like when they hiss right when they're really upset and they hiss at you but the scary cat noises in this movie are just like Row! yeah like uh feed me yes they're feed me noises which maybe is scary because they want to eat you. But the thing is, is because the cats are not frightening at all, they're just cats, it serves to just make Nora seem actually crazy. Yeah. Right? Instead of us having the way a gaslight plot is supposed to work, 
where we're on the person being gaslit's side and go like, oh, yeah, people around you are manipulating you, you know. and Building and, tension. Right, right. Instead, we're just like, huh, she is kind of nuts. Yeah. She should maybe go see a doctor, actually. Actually. Let's move on to ranking. Yeah. All right, Sarah. So where were you looking for placement for The Creeper? Well, it's it's pretty darn low, Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, because this movie is not good. Mm-hmm. It is fumbling with concepts I don't think they even truly understand. Mm-hmm. So I, I looked down towards another film that fumbled with concepts they didn't really understand. House of Mystery from 1934 Hmm. at number 137. Sure. Now, I feel like the creeper can go above or below House of Mystery. (laughs) And that's because House of Mystery is wanting to do an old dark house film. It, It knows the ingredients it needs to go in, that it needs to go into the picture but it doesn't understand how to actually put them together. Mm-hmm. It's like when you're trying to make a cheese platter and you're like, ah, so I'll just get cheese and crackers. Right. When, you know, you, you actually want like fancy cheese and maybe some salami as right, a treat. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, with the creeper, it understands that like, okay, so if you want to do some gaslighty stuff, we need to have bitches be crazy. Um, it's cats, so we'll add cats. Um, it's horror, so we'll add shadows, um, and we don't know who did it, so, uh, here's some red herrings. Yeah, and they kind of know, like, what, so they know the ingredients of a Val Luton movie without knowing how to tell a story. Exactly. That's why, like, I think on a storytelling level, I think The Creeper is worse than House of Mystery. I hate the ending of House of Mystery because it's this way. But to be fair, House of Mystery at least manages to explain everything that happens in the movie. Yeah, it does everything with a purpose, even yeah. if it's just a red herring purpose. Yeah. Whereas I feel like The Creeper, um, I don't think the writers thought about any line in this movie for more than a second. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me a lot of um, Scared to Death in the feeling of like being written line to line. Yeah. So that's that's my spot, probably oh. uh, at 138, right below House of Mystery. Okay. Well, I'm a little bit higher than you. Not a lot, but a little bit higher. I started my journey by thinking of another bad movie starring Ralph Morgan that didn't go anywhere and kind of didn't engage us at all, uh, Condemned to Live at 139, which is the second lowest movie on the list. And I went, well, you know... This is probably better on, yeah. like, just a basic kind of level. It's better than Torture Ship, which is hardly a movie. When I got to House of Mystery, I decided I felt this was better made on a technical level. Like, as a movie, this has camera angles and camera movement and shadows. And I know that Gene Yarbrough, like, is maybe not the best director to be handling this material, but, like can direct movies, whereas the thing with House of Mystery that was really frustrating for me, aside from the story being bad, was that every shot was just a proscenium shot as if you were filming a play, to the point where, like, if they wanted to have more than one character in a scene, the characters would just stand elbow to elbow in the shot, instead of having close-ups or medium shots or shot-reverse shot. 
That is true. So I kept going higher. Um, I thought that this movie was better than Wolf Blood because a dude does actually transform in this one. Yeah, it's a it, uh, crossfade right. transformation. And I kept working my way up to Monster Walks, and I thought, well, again, this movie doesn't know how to execute its premise, but it does do the thing in a way that the Monster Walks doesn't. Yeah, the Monster Walks, hey, it's the monkey in the basement, like you thought. It gives up on being interesting. Um, So then I got to Scared to Death, which this really reminded me of for the script reason I told you about. Yeah. But this movie even though it does have that distinction between, like, suspicious men are shady, suspicious women are bitches, which is, you know, pretty sexist, it didn't have the, like, really uncomfortable, mean-spirited streak that Scared to Death had, where it just felt like it hated everybody. Right above Scared to Death is The Spider-Woman Strikes Back, and I, I was starting to go, like, okay, I don't think this goes higher than The spider Woman Strikes Back, but then I thought... But, man, the plot of The Spider-Woman Strikes Back also doesn't make any fucking sense. I think it makes more sense than The Creeper. Right. Then I looked at The Mad Ghoul, and I thought, The Mad Ghoul's plot also doesn't fucking make sense. And then I got to Crime of Dr. Crespi. I was like, nah, Crime of Dr. Crespi is definitely better. So my range is 126 to 129. I think this is definitely better than Monster Walks, but could be better than the mad ghoul you know if you're really strong on it's not better than spider woman strikes back that's a top discussion we can have you know but that's where i was looking okay well the middle point between the bottom of your list Mm -hmm. 129 and my spot 137 so that's eight spots so one two three four that's wolf blood so yes there is an actual transformation in the creeper it's goofy as hell. Yeah. Like, I'm not kidding where it, it's, it's, it's comical. Even the steps in the, um, like, dissolve transformation are bad, because basically it's, he has a human hand, then he has a werewolf hand, then he has, like, a bigger, hairier werewolf hand, and then he has, like, a cat mascot from a theme park paw. Yes. With, like, claws. You know, it's not, like, really a gradual thing. It's like they're just cycling through, like, three different claw gloves that they had. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Wolf Blood had some pretty cool special effects for 1925. I think it gets a lot of flack from us because it didn't meet what our expectations were. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much we can really fault the movie for that when we were expecting... Wolfman, and we got blood transfusions, you know? Right, well, and I mean, the other thing, though, is, like, the blood transfusions don't lead to an actual transformation. It's him in his head being worried about what if this happens, right? Yeah. But I see what you're saying in the sense that, like, wolf blood gets advertised to people today under the banner, the very first werewolf movie, which creates that expectation that it doesn't live up to. But we actually have no evidence that it was advertised at the time as a werewolf movie, right? Yeah. So I do see what you're kind of saying there, and I do think part of this is because Wolf Blood comes from a different era of filmmaking where characters and motivations were much simpler. Yes. But the character motivations and arcs and behaviors all do make sense in that movie. Yeah, even as it gets complicated, Right, because there is a little bit of a conspiracy yeah, involved. Yeah, but it, like, 
it it all makes sense retrospectively, which this movie doesn't. So I think honestly, the creeper is worse than Wolf Blood. Hmm. So are you sure it's worse than? Because because where I'm getting stuck is scared to death and monster walks basically, because like the other stuff in this area is hard to compare things to, and you know monster walks is just hard to watch and so is scared to death and as i said like this reminds me of a less mean-spirited scared to death so i'm not sure on the other hand scared to death is kind of more fun because it's so bad that you at least get some fun out of watching it this movie's just bad yeah so i do do think scared to death is better okay and then yeah like monster walks the 1913 jekyll and hyde which that's the one where he just hops at people to scare them? Yeah. You're still confident, though, at Below Wolf Blood? Yes. Okay. Because even though the 1913 Jekyll and Hyde was a short, uh, so that means like 10 minutes, 15 minutes yeah. maybe, Yeah. Um, it managed to get across the very like complicated story of Jekyll and Hyde in the barest of terms. That's it fair. It knew how to simplify a story. Fair. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely better than House of Mystery, and the thing between House of Mystery and Wolfblood is a bunch of Melies movies, which are hard to... Melies movies from the turn of the century, which are really hard to, like, judge things between, because the only way you can really judge Melies movies against later movies is, like... Concept. Concept and effects. And I think, like, to that point, those films are just concepts. The Creeper, while they are fumbling with concepts, is a bit more complicated. It has a bit more sophistication in terms of the story that it's telling. Yeah, so I I feel like it should go above Milies if we're considering it there. Okay, so then you're saying at number 134 is where you want to end up? Yes. Okay, so entering the list at number 134 is The Creeper from 1948, directed by Gene Yarbrough. If you would like to see the list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today. Check out the bottom of the list. We don't come down here very often. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's down in the basement here? <laughs> oh, Condemned to Live. Yeah, it's been months since I thought about you. Yeah. On our website, you can also find our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed and listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to help out the show... Leave us a rating or a review on the service that you use. Those help the show get seen by new listeners. Another thing that helps the show get out to new listeners is if you just tell people about the show. Uh, This is sort of our off-season in the sense that, like, viewership generally goes up in the months leading up to and then kind of coming down from October. Which Um, makes sense. Yeah. And we are now, like... Yeah, on the other half of the year right now. So I guess, so what I mean to be saying is that, you know, this is the time of the year sort of where we really appreciate those recommendations the most. Another way you can help us out is by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, 
where you can become a patron of the night for as little as $1 a month. There are special bonus rewards at the $5 and $10 level, and that really helps us for things like paying for hosting, as well as sort of the time needed to like research the show and put the show together every week. So it really means a lot to us, uh, anything that you can pitch in. Yeah, we really appreciate all of our patrons pitching in uh, to help keep the lights on at Castle Scream Scene. Yes, indeed. That's patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we are headed over to Britain. Oh. We haven't been there in a long time. Yes. They didn't really have a taste for horror during the uh, Second World War. We're going to be watching an adaptation of a very famous short story that I feel like most people are more familiar with in like sort of homages and parodies and like retellings of than like the original story itself. Yeah, Simpsons Treehouse of Horror kind of adaptations. Exactly, because we are watching The Monkey's Paw from 1948. Awesome, cool. I'm excited for this. Uh, all right, well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.